Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to this week's episode of Freedom Books, Flowers and the Moon, the podcast brought to you every week by the TLS. My name is Thea Narduzzi and with the editor Stig Abelaway, I'm joined by the TLS's arts editor, Lucy Dallas. Lucy, hello. Hello. Um, apart from being an arts editor, you have another hat which you, you wear to be transported into the digital realm. It's a hat made of pixels. <laughs> Explain. <laughs> it's not really a hat made of pixels. <laughs> no. um, what news do you bring us from from that realm? Well, uh, it's vague but promising. So I'm not going to be pinned down to any um, anything too concrete, but we are revamping our digital offering. Can we say that? Well, it will be much, much better. No, 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 I'm, I'm convinced. <laughs> I'm just for the website and how you go about it, how you subscribe online and the app and all sorts of things. Exciting new things will be available. There'll be a shop, for instance. Oh, yeah. tantalising. And... It's all going to be brilliant and everything will work. And more more soon. We'll be able to tell you more soon, I think. Yeah, I'm only being cagey because it's just... it's a, Just it, an aura of, of mystery. Well, no, it's not so much that. It's just more of a, <laughs> a hostage to fortune. <laughs> yeah, okay. Best, best to be hand-wavy and say it will be brilliant and it will happen soon. Well, if you like the TLS and if you'd like to support all of that, <laughs> uh, here's a reminder about a very decent subscription offer. If you live in the US or Canada, go to podcast.the- tls.com if you live anywhere else including the uk then go to the hyphen tls.co.uk forward slash pod 19 on this week's show how were the 1960s for norman mailer as the library of america releases two hefty volumes of mailer's writing from and about that decade thomas meany will join us to discuss henry hitchings will be on to celebrate oberon war a writer who's urged to be both vivid and surprising whether writing about the political rhetoric of the day or summer drinking, often landed him in trouble. And Toby Lishtick has been to a documentary festival and he will be considering the continued relevance of this genre in dialogue with the truth. Norman Mailer entered the 1960s in pretty good shape. Through the 1950s, he'd been cultivating an image as a kind of prophet of the counterculture. He was the philosopher of hip, pushing for a revolution in the consciousness of our time. 
This was in essays mostly, the novels after some bad reviews had been parked. His controversial essay, The White Negro, still his best-known essay, first published in Descent magazine in 1957, was collected in a ragtag career-so-far retrospective, Advertisements for Myself, which came out not long before 1959 turned to 1960. And while the immediate reception wasn't great, Gore Vidal called it a wide graveyard of stillborn talents, Mailer had certainly found his voice. The 1960s was then, in many ways, all set to be his decade. It started with an unsuccessful run to be mayor of New York City and an infamous fight with his then-wife Adele Morales, whom he stabbed and nearly killed. It ended with Mailer winning a Pulitzer Prize for the Armies of the Night about America's involvement in Vietnam and running to be mayor of New York City again. Unsuccessful again. Here to fill in some of the gaps, fresh from immersing himself in Norman Mailer's 1960s work via two new Library of America editions, is Thomas Meany. Thomas, hello. Hello, how are you? Uh, good, thank you. Um, I say that you are fresh from, but you, you possibly feel exhausted. Um, what, what's it like to be dropped straight into that particular mode, that particular mailer for about 1,500 pages? It's a pretty um, dizzying, but also very interesting um, body of work, I think, especially to appreciate it from this distance when sort of Mailer, the man himself, is gone from the scene, you can see a little bit more what's sort of tiring and boring about him, but also what's sort of still thrilling and, and interesting about him. And do you, do you think it is helpful to think of Mailer in decades like this? I mean, how does the how does the 60s Mailer really differ from the 50s Mailer yeah, or I, indeed the, the 70s Mailer? You know, I say in the piece that it's a slight pity because you lose some of the pieces on either end of the decade. And of course, there's something arbitrary about it. But in general, you know, I think that part of the, the fun of thinking about him is as, as a figure of the zeitgeist. And so if you want to put a label on that zeitgeist, the 1960s is, is a pretty decent one, I'd say. I mean, he really is a figure of that time who knows himself to be of that time and is trying to kind of express the time in his own writing very consciously. And I think that that's, that's one thing that makes him that makes him worth reading. And so what do you think his best work of the 60s was? I mean, do you think it was Armies of the Night, which he won the Pulitzer for? You know, I was kind of trying to do something a little bit like Mailer in, term, in terms of sort of really trying to read him from our particular moment, you know, and really stress the moment that I'm reading him in. And I found that as I say in the piece, you know, that the novels, he's almost has too much freedom in the novels. And so he just lets himself go down every single trap door of his obsessions. Whereas in the journalism, when he's when he's a little bit more constrained by actual existing reality, he writes some really powerful stuff. And I think Armies of the Night is the most sustained reflection of that. And you see it in this collection of nonfiction that Armies of the Night is sort of a summa of all of the different nonfiction pieces he was writing at the time. But some of these shorter magazine pieces are really startling in how well he does them and how different they are from what people do today. I mean, I do think and I cite a few people in the piece who I think are kind of working, whether they know it or not, in some kind of mailer tradition. But at the same time, um, Mailer does this high prophetic mode where he just sort of declares what he thinks is happening in the most world historical sense. So about the Cold War, about the Vietnam War, about the civil rights movement. He sees them all connected, and um, sometimes he can be really wrong. 
but he's right sometimes as well. And so that that's what's interesting is that there's sort of insight every few pages mixed up with misfired impression. Thomas, I think one of the things when you say he was very much, you know, of his time and of the 60s, particularly that was when he was very, very kind of alive and engaged. Um, um, but as you say, in terms of the misfires, he wasn't really on board with feminism, shall we say, was he? No, I mean, I find his writings about feminism and even around feminism pretty tedious. I mean, I think it would be a real chore to try to read a book like The Prisoner of Sex or something again. And that's funny. That's a sort of strange thing about him. I mean, on the on the one hand, some things about sexuality, he'd probably be very au courant about. I think that he believed in like gender fluidity and things like that. In terms of even some of the most basic feminist values, he's just unremittingly hostile and doesn't really seem to realize that that hostility has something to do with the society that he's living in and the world that he's come out of. You know, he just assumes that these are sort of eternal truths about the relationship between men and women and that they must be that way and that to deny them is some sort of, you know, horrible, you know, political oppression. So, no, I don't think he's really worth reading about about feminism at all. Um, You say at one point, you say almost all the negatives typically thrown at Mailer, if anyone still bothers to throw anything at him. Do you mean that in terms of you don't think people read him anymore or that the labels have have just well and truly stuck? No, I don't think that people read him anymore, at least in the same way. I mean, you know, as I say in the piece, he was really like the central figure. I mean, he was on the cover of the New York Review books every other often. He was the main writer for, for many glossy magazines. His books were sort of the talk of the day. I mean, you see this a little bit in Luke Manan's piece on Mailer in The New Yorker, where he just sort of is writing a kind of obituary of a writer that doesn't matter anymore. But I think that if you talk to people who care about long-form journalism or campaign journalism or political journalism, you'll find that, you know, the best people still working today will be very happy to talk about Mailer. It's funny because you, um, Robert Lowell's assessment of Mailer was that he was the finest journalist in America, and that really rankled Mailer, didn't it? It's a very funny part of that book is Mailer's obsessed with Wasp America. And I think that there's a part of him that really thinks that there's something about the Anglo-Saxon, you know, white Protestants that he thinks is sort of genetically doomed the country in some way. Lowell is sort of the representative of that. But, you know, Lowell was a great observer in his own way, in some ways a deeper one than Mailer, and, and immediately recognized Mailer's gifts for what they were. And I think that that annoyed Mailer to no end. And I think in the in the meantime, uh, Robert Lowell's wife, Elizabeth Hardwick, was pillorying Mailer, uh, his presidential papers. There's that really funny review that she did for the NYRB as Xavier Prynne, in which she just kind of lays into Mailer and, and really gets his style. I wonder, you call these Library of America books a funeral cortege box set, but you also make very clear that the journalism from that era is what we should remember him for, really, and it's still very much alive to read now. Do you think that these volumes, do you think they'll help to kind of rehabilitate Mailer? I suspect that Mailer's reputation, which I wouldn't want to speculate, I wouldn't want to speculate too much about the future of his reputation. I suppose that there's something, there's something funny about, you know, reading a, a magazine piece in the middle of a Library of America volume. The journalism has been elevated into some sort of canon, but at the same time, there's something strange about reading it in a, in a hardcover volume with with several different other pieces around it. But I think that I suspect that he will remain important for people who try to write about American politics. And I suspect that he will also be important for if there's any change in the culture, 
you know, right now, I think you want to write political novels that are sort of written on behalf of or for a collective. And I think if there's a reaction to that and people get back into writing deep, egotistical in a kind of neutral sense novels, then Mailer might be due uh, reappraisal. Well, I suspect that he'll be a dormant figure for the next, you know, for the next while. Well, his, his time may come again then. Um, Thomas Meany, thank you so much for your time. Thank you indeed for having me on. Hi. It's funny, Lucy, he says Thomas Meany makes clear that the 1960s was very much Mailer's time, but it, you do get the sense that today would have been his time too, in some ways. I mean, not in the hashtag me too ways. Oh no, he wouldn't have been involved with that at all. <laughs> and he would, he would have, have been he would also have been situation. He also would have been ninety six, so um I I, well, I dread think it, but Yeah, from what it what it sounds like, he'd still have been up for it. Yes, he would have absolutely loved you get the sense from the piece that he'd have been right in there saying, Okay, I know who Donald Trump is. Well uh, Thomas I mean he starts his piece, doesn't he, with exactly. a with a kind of parody a rather brilliant one. He's very modest about it, but I thought it was quite a brilliant parody of, of Norman Mailer. It really is. Um, of what he might write about Donald Trump now. When he says the spectacle, this is Thomas Meany again, the spectacle of celebrity entertainment come home to rot was prime Mailer territory. Mm. Very much, in a sense, yeah, man for our times. Mm-hmm. He'd be well into it. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Norman Mailer would possibly not be thrilled by our next subject, Oberon War, if only because the latter, in his 14-year editorship at the Literary Review, invented the Bad Sex in Fiction Awards to draw attention to the crude, tasteless, often perfunctory use of redundant passages of sexual description in the modern novel and to discourage it. Unsurprisingly, Mailer won the award. Surprisingly, it wasn't until his final novel, and so the prize was awarded posthumously. But it's Oberon, or Bron, war that we're here to talk about now. A complicated man who mused in 1980 that looking back over my career to date and all the people I have insulted, I am mildly surprised that I am still allowed to exist. Henry Hitchings has reviewed two new books, or rather one new, A Scribbler in Soho, which calls itself a celebration of Oberon War, and one old, War on Wine, from 1986, now finally back in print. He joins us here to tell us more. Hello, Henry. Hello. The Bad Sex Award seems like a very Oberon War-y kind of thing to do. It does, yes. I mean, 
I think one of the big features of war is always sneering. It's deriding the weak and the people who can't answer back and people who write badly about sex belong in that category. Actually, my introduction to him was when I was about 11 years old and my father had really despaired of the fact that I read terrible science fiction by, well, I thought it was rather good, by people like (laughs) Frank Herbert. And he gave me two books that he thought I might like. One was Scoop. And the other was the Foxglove saga by uh, Oberon War. It was pretty clear to me which of the two was the better. I don't think I need to spell that out for TLS listeners. But uh, this was my introduction to Bron. And then he was someone who periodically cropped up thereafter. Uh, I'm a wine... I hate I hesitate to say wine lover because that sounds quite wanky in there, but it's better than saying enophile. Uh, I'm just a drinker. I'm just a enophile, a steady drinker. Maybe not. Um, Exactly, with a passing interest in wine, and that was a a place that I I came across him. Some of the other activities passed me by, but the private eye stuff bulked pretty large. Um, I grew up with private eye in the house and have always read it, you know, for better or for worse. I mean, it performs some very useful functions but war's contribution to it the slightly more unpleasant vituperative i mean it is amazing who he, whom he chose to to drench with his bile you say that he he enjoyed sneering the weak but he he enjoyed sneering well at everyone and and the powerful too mm. i mean he had that line there are countless horrible things happening all over the world and horrible people prospering but we must never allow them to disturb our equanimity or deflect us from our sacred duty to sabotage and annoy them whenever possible you're absolutely right and i was being a bit facetious which is totally out of character well, but, not at all right um, piece about open war yeah it's, no, yeah, exactly. it's totally off never limits it's off, it's off limits and i do apologize but <laughs> It does seem to me there's a huge tension in him and there's a huge tension in appreciating him because on the one hand, he was someone who spoke out in a very forthright and sometimes indeed courageous way about terrible people and terrible things. But then he would go and spoil it all by raining abuse on, you know, constituencies that just aren't appropriate targets for that. I mean, he had certain recurrent obsessions in terms of social you know, groups in society. He was always going on about what he called homosexualists. And you only have to, you know, give shape to that word to hear how it was being uttered. And then there were particular personal beefs, or was the plural beeves, I'm not sure. <laughs> um, you know, people who were his targets, who frankly would barely exist in people's recollection now if it hadn't been for the fact that he, that he you know, went after them in the way that he did. Uh, and Glenda Jackson, who doesn't fall into that category in terms of not being memorable, was someone I mean, no opportunity was missed to go on about how ugly she was. And it's just, I mean, unbelievable. One of the great actors of the day. And yet he was obsessed with the fact that she had curious pubic hair, which uh, was a Mohican. And also I seem to remember he, he, he blamed, almost blamed her for being in, in a series of abusive relationships. Oh, I didn't remember that. No, okay, yeah. He, was was, maybe a, she was the site of because she was, uh, she was in a kind of typically very liberal left wing profession, and she was very openly left wing, and rather comes across as rather a kind of strong woman. You know, maybe there was, but you see, then as you say, there's always this tension, isn't there? Because there's a lot of I've been reading about it, and there's a lot of um, uh, people on the left saying actually. He championed lots of left-wing things, and he was friends with lots of brilliant women. I read he was weirdly saying... both a snob and an anarchist somehow. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes, he described Someone's himself saying... as a Tory, a Tory anarchist. Yeah. And one of the other things that people said a lot when he died 
was that there was this great tension between someone who in private was tremendously generous and genial and then the moment he got on the printed page was just vile. And I always think it's interesting to imagine what he would have been like in the age of social media because it's a long time now since he he died. I mean, it's very easy to think that he's someone from, from a completely bygone age, but if he was still alive, as I say in my piece, he wouldn't yet be 80. He would be turning 80 in November of this year. Are you shuddering to imagine Oberyn Wall's tweets? Oh, well, I know. I mean, I, I sort of shudder because he'd have been brilliant, but he would also, every single... I mean, he would have been Casey Hopkins cubed in terms of the amount of, not the quality of the tweets, um, but the kind yeah. of opprobrium with which they would be met. And it's difficult as well, isn't it? Because there is a kind of... He's very sort of polarising. There's a spectator group with Naima Tala, I think, who is the, also the publisher of one of the books you review. Mm. And, and, and he's kind of St. Oberon for them. Mm. And then, but there's also a, a left-wing group he wrote for the New Statesman and the Private Eye, not exactly left-wing, but not the same camp as the Spectator people. There's different sets of people who claim him and, or, and some people think he's awful. And, and in a sense, it's quite hard to imagine that kind of fluidity now moving across yes. the media scape in, that, yeah. in, in the way because that Because nobody, did. or very few people who write regularly for The Spectator now would write for The New Statesman. Mm. Or but I think people admired what you could call his integrity and you could certainly call his consistency, actually. It was uh, quite a, something that appealed to people of all political stripes, was mm. that he really you know, pursued all his views very doggedly. He wasn't someone who was like a sort of weather vane. So many journalists can feel weather vane-like. The wine writing is is an area where actually we get to see him, I think, as his funniest, but also, uh, you know, the targets, um, they're not so inflammatory. So him going after people who collect fine wine, like they collect postage stamps, doesn't really feel like a low blow. Um, and actually some of the the things that he fulminates about are worth fulminating about. But this book, published in 1986, obviously the problem is the writing is often lively and interesting, but so much has changed in in the mm. wine landscape that some of the things he's saying are, are very sort of, you know, pressing and current, just feel completely passe. And also there are enthusiasms which he is trumpeting as if they're completely new and they seem terribly old hat. He's always complaining about the, the British propensity for liking really ghastly sweet white wines. Well, I mean, I haven't encountered one of those in the wild. It's since, kind of the opposite now, isn't yeah, it? Dry white. Exactly. When was the last time someone even offered you a blue nun? <laughs> Alas. I have never been offered a blue nun. <laughs> or not that kind, anyway. Yes. I wonder as well what he would have made of natural wine. Can you imagine? Oh, he would have hated it, but also because it, it really does smell bad. Often. <laughs> I mean, not always. Sorry. He would have. But he, sometimes it does. Too, he would have it? found a very sometimes. sort of swifty and scatological way of talking about its farmyardy qualities. I yeah. think it's fair to say. Yeah. And you know, the other thing is he he writes about what he likes, and it's the sort of stuff anyone would enjoy if they had the money. I mean, you know, saying well, I particularly like Chateau Lafitte is, wow. <laughs> yeah. You know, thanks. So would I, thanks I for the tip. What's good for seven ninety nine? Yeah. Um, yeah. And when he talks about, you know, really good value things, when you actually price them up and realise what he's talking about, they're, yeah, I mean, maybe to him, but not to most people. There's a sort of how you... There's a, there's a, an essay of his on 
what kind of a cellar you should have. And the first thing he tells you... You should have a cellar for, well, for a start. Well, you've got to have a cellar. <laughs> yeah. But his, he mentions that his cellar in Somerset, I think, has either nine or 12 separate vaults. And he then begins to explain what he consigns to different vaults. And you just think, this is not... Um... But he wasn't one for the common people. Well, anyway, no, and, and, and that's the house that he inherited from his father as well. And there's a bit that you talk about in your piece about the when Evelyn Moore talks about wine in Brideshead. Mm. when uh, basically Charles and Sebastian are sitting around testing the, no doubt, more than nine rooms yeah. of the... Um, yes, a little shy wine like a gazelle or a wine that is <laughs> like a flute by still water. I mean, one of the challenges anyone writing about wine faces, and this is something he had to wrestle with, is is do you go down the route of being rather sort of po-faced and agricultural about it, or do you try and be very metaphorical about it? And he... He pretends that he's not interested in the sort of agricultural approach, but actually sometimes he does lapse into it, despite all his protests to the contrary. He likes being metaphorical and saying that, you know, it's like a French railway station or something <laughs> like that. But that that metaphorical tendency could get him in a bit of trouble. I mean, he wants... I think it's actually his very first wine column for Tatler. He'd been served a, a bad wine by his cousin, and he said that it was uh, reminiscent of a dead chrysanthemum on the grave of a stillborn West Indian baby. And, I mean, that, you know, understandably got him in a lot of trouble. Seems to be wildly unpleasant. Yes, and, I mean, the, the, obviously there's there is certain detail there which feels yeah. calculated to cause offence yeah. and, yeah. and sort of, you know, superfluous, really. He always enjoyed that kind of reaction when people said how tasteless this was a sort of ho what fun kind mm. of kind of moment i mean one of his sort of famous episodes in his life was when he described now who was the journalist george gale and he referred to him as lunchtime o gale and he got sacked by nigel lawson who was the editor of the spectator and then he sued nigel lawson for wrongful dismissal and won the case oh yeah because a lot of people kind of came in to support him didn't they yes very unlikely people yeah you started by mentioning his novels, and that's that's how you came to him. So maybe mm. maybe we'll finish by talking about his novels a little bit as well. Um, does anyone still read them? Should they? I don't think many people still read them. I've read three of them, but I can't remember them in great detail because it was a long time ago. I just remember that there was always something a bit odd about the way he wrote about sex, which at the point in time where I read them, I found titillating, but I think now in retrospect I might find a bit disgusting he, he must have known that when he was when he was scheming and plotting the bad sex in fiction he must have had that insecurity very much in his mind yes i'm sure that's right i'm sure that's right there's always something a bit funny about him writing about sex he's very worried about good-looking nuns for example that's an oh, area yeah. of real <laughs> real concern for him and there's a lot of stuff about well, there's not a lot of stuff over doing it but you know thai massage parlors crop up quite a lot oh, in his imagination and he's very concerned about the hairy legs of the female delegates their delegate delegates interesting freudian slip he's very concerned about the hairy legs of the female delegates at the labor party conference and you just think why <laughs> on that delightful image i think <laughs> we'll probably leave it there just leave that to linger in our listeners minds <laughs> thank you very much henry thank you. thank you for coming in
The TLS is at the movies this week. Adam Mars-Jones discusses the literary and spiritual sides of Robert Bresson. Muriel Zaga looks at the radical writer and filmmaker Chantal Ackerman. Stanley Wells considers Shakespeare on screen and offers to impersonate Laurence Olivier's Coriolanus. And Imogen Westnights looks at what links Brad Pitt, Gwyneth Paltrow and Karl Marx, which is quite a lot, it turns out. But we're also looking at the non-fiction side of things, as our own Toby Lichtig went to a documentary film festival, read a book by a grand homme of documentary making, and has written for us about it. Toby, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Can you tell us first about um, Nick Fraser, please, who wrote the book, which is called Say What Happened, A Story of Documentaries? Yes. So Nick Fraser is a producer, commissioner. He was at the BBC for many years, and he created the BBC Strand Storyville, which is essentially, I mean, it's a series, but it's basically a showcase of documentaries, global documentaries, um, all different sorts of sorts of documentary, different categories. But the, the idea is that they're sort of reasonably high-minded, um, very global in reach, and they commission their own original material, and they also buy stuff off off other uh, channels and strands. So you'll, you'll get HBO. Uh, documentaries appearing on Storyville and, and, and vice versa. And it's very, very highly recommended. Highly recommended. Kind of does lots of brilliant stuff, There's, there? Exactly. I mean, like, I, as I say in the piece, there have been very few duds over the years. I think it's run for about 17, 18 years and it's the, the output has been extremely impressive, mm. extremely consistently impressive. I mean, you know, if you're ever bored, just go online, look at, look at what's on the Storyville homepage and you'll find something that you want to watch. And so that was his thing. That was his thing. So he's, I mean, he, I think he's in his early 70s now. He's basically spent a life working in docs. He's not a filmmaker. I describe him as a filmmaker, as in he's he sort of gets things done. He finds funding, makes things work, comes up with ideas and gives them to directors. But then he also spends a lot of time in the edit suite. So he's, a, he's an old-fashioned producer as well who will put in their creative input. But he's not, I mean, I, I think he's, he's, he even says in the book at one point, you know, I'm... I'm I'm not a filmmaker. I've noticed it's, it's just not where my talents lie at all. And he, he shows quite a lot of reverence for actual directors and, and the things that they can do, which he sort of feels is just kind of beyond his ken. But yeah, he's been involved in documentary for his entire life. And so he's incredibly knowledgeable and he has seen thousands more, probably, documentaries, tens of thousands, who knows. Um, and he's reflecting on the story of documentary and the history of documentary the past hundred years or so in this book, but also weaving in his own reflections on things he's worked on and things he's thought about and it's a mostly very interesting and entertaining read. Do we end up with effectively a chronology of documentaries that he that he rates? Do, do, is there a kind of a, a manifesto-ish there's a sort of a, yeah there's I mean he said, he said it's not a history and it kind of is and you sort of trot through the usual suspects sort of starting in their kind of 20s with Vertov and you know going through the sort of 30s and 40s it's almost public information style films and the kind of propaganda and Lenny Riefen style and all the rest of it in terms of his own manifesto he does come up with his sort of recipe for what makes a good documentary and I might as well sort of read it out because he said but there, there are basically four things that he thinks make the best documentaries. One, they should be provisional, so you shouldn't actually kind of know exactly what's going to happen when you start off. So there's an element of luck. It should have some notion of an author. It should have creative collision with received notions of depicting the world. It should basically be creative and inventive. And uh, I guess that's what he means. And it should occasionally be funny, which is kind of an interesting line to take, because not all documentaries are inherently funny in terms of their subject matter. But actually, I think he's got a good point there. This is a medium like many other mediums that is also here to entertain. And even the, and I've used, I use the term with scare quotes, worthiest films, even the kind of the films that are doing the most incisive forms of journalism need to kind of sell themselves just as, the, just, just as any form of journalism needs to 
grab the reader's interest if it's you know if it's in print it needs to be well written for example so yeah humor is one device i would say which can be used to draw people in and, and keep people watching and is that i want to ask you about is that one of the kind of facets of the tension or struggle between very naturalistic kind of cinema verite style that looks like a fly on the wall and the other kind of much more auteurish uh, edited soundtrack well, you know the one with that you say with lots of pizzazz that feels much more made as it were yeah i mean uh, you can have humor in fly on the wall cinema verite stuff that film spellbound well, a, a while ago for example which which looked at a season in an american spelling bee and it had lots of interviews with kids who were just inherently funny and it was it's just a very humorous documentary the example i was about to give was um être avoir which was nicolas philibert yeah, which is also about children so i think yeah. probably yeah. if you have children yeah. in a documentary it's going or animals it's probably going it's to be funny. Quite funny. <laughs> funny but obviously the more authored and by by that we can you know mean the more of the snazzy stuff that happens in the editing suite whether it's you know you can use music to good humor you can be very funny with the sorts of scores you use all the other kind of editing techniques that are put in including voiceover scripting all the rest of it of course those rhetorical tools and i think it is a form of rhetoric i think it's interesting to think about documentary making in terms of rhetoric those are ways of getting humor and obviously verite where you've got all that sort of stuff stripped out you've just got less wiggle room in order to kind of put your own mm. slant on, on things. But that's not to say, of course, that all documentaries are not inherently authored in some way or another. What does Nick Fraser have to say about... There's been a change in the way that we see documentaries and the way that they're framed. There's bigger budgets. They're more of a thing than they used to be. Absolutely. So, he, yeah, he says they were sort of once the poor relation. In fact, he actually says they're sort of still sort of the poor relation because they're not still grossing the same as the high budget thrillers or whatever but he sort of obliquely gestures to a phenomenon that really starts in the late 80s with Michael Moore and Errol Morris as well Michael Moore's first big film Roger and Me that was in 89 and I think the previous year Errol Morris had a film called The Thin Blue Line and both kind of got a kind of cult following Roger and Me I think did fairly well at the box office people weren't really going to see documentaries at the box office before then not very regularly anyway and then it sort of really gains pace in the 90s and you've got I think Michael Moore's film Fahrenheit um, 9-11 grossed $120 million at the box office, which is an extraordinary thing for a document. You know, for what is essentially any film, any film <laughs> and for what is essentially a political polemic. Mm. So you've got that phenomenon. Then you've also got Netflix and Amazon and now Apple who are investing a lot of money in documentary making. So suddenly there are... Lots of snazzy techniques that, that are being invested in. For example, you've got the Blue Planet. Those, those kind of techniques are now being used in other sorts of documentaries. They're very expensive to make, but Netflix has got the money to do that, and they're they're seeing it as worth investing in. Do you think as well? I was thinking that some of the documentary techniques have been co-opted into some of the scare quotes fiction films. Because I was thinking of Adam McKay. I never know we say McKay or Mackay. Adam Mackay, let's say, The Big Short, and his latest one, Vice, which seemed to me pretty heavily Adam Curtis influenced. Yes, I haven't seen Vice actually, but the big, the big short, for example. I mean, that very much draws on. There, there are a slew of films after the financial crisis. You know, looking at what happened. So there was Alex Gibney's film Enron. Um, there's another Michael Moore from Capitalism, a love story. And how on earth do you explain these incredibly complex financial instruments in documentary form? You use graphics, you use interviews, all the rest of it. And so, yes, The Big Short does that and it kind of breaks the fourth wall, doesn't it? And, yeah, uh, all the time. And suddenly... also it uses big Hollywood stars yeah. that you know mm. from big Hollywood movies. And it's, it's it was first you know, the first time you see it, it's quite 
destabilizing because you think they're acting apart and that's fine and then they turn around and tell you something tell you stuff exactly but then also you've got documentaries drawing on the fiction form and you have creative reconstruction in documentaries so they they, you know the two forms or the two spheres of filmmaking very much bleed into each other as Mm. well all of that is very different from the very paired back cinema verite style of the documentaries that you that you saw at Open City Documentary Festival. That is correct, yes. So I went to this, I mean, it was a sort of festival that took place over a week earlier in September in London. Um, it's been running for a few years. I found it quite difficult to find out what its mission statement was. Um, it says something sort of fairly oblique to the tune of to nurture and champion the art of creative documentary. Basically, it's putting on documentaries that the commissioners think are good. They're very global and reach a bit like Storyville. So I think they came from 70 films from 31 countries. Not all of them were verite, but it seemed like quite a lot of them were. I didn't see all 70, I'm afraid. Um, what? Dear listeners, oh, I know. I was lazy. a bit I was a bit um I was a bit lazy this month, but I did see five. It's <laughs> <laughs> not bad. Okay. You know, we're all busy. I saw five and they were all extremely naturalistic. They sat very squarely in in that kind of category. There was not a single voice over the camera. In at least two of the films, the camera doesn't move. It's just framed. In fact, one of them is it's brilliant, actually. You're sitting there for a whole film, 90 minutes, and the very final shot, the camera pans, and it's an incredibly jarring That's, moment. That's um, Caballerango, is Caballerango, it? Which yes. sounds amazing. Yeah. It sounds beautiful. I actually, Tell us about I, that one. I enjoyed that enormously. So that is the director. I'm going to have to suddenly... Pablo Gonzalez. Thank you very much. Juan Pablo Gonzalez. Juan Pablo Gonzalez, you would pronounce so much better than I ever would anyway. Um, it's it's a very beautifully shot film set in this rural Mexican community. Um, it starts off, you kind of think you're on some sort of murder investigation. There's an interview with this guy who's talking about his dead son and there's a sense that it might be foul play, but it's quickly revealed that the son committed suicide. And then it's revealed that there have been a spate of suicides in this community and it's basically like life is tough, money is short. And things aren't going very well there and that's kind of it in terms of what happens but it's very 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 beautifully framed and very cleverly and slowly unfolding I enjoyed that a lot actually I thought it was really beautifully done there are there are kind of moments where it drags a little bit but I think it just about justifies it sort of it's 90 minutes big screen release not all the documentaries that I saw were quite as engrossing and I think it's sort of at worst there, there are a couple I mentioned in my piece that you sort of feel like they could have been interesting in terms of subject matter, but the magic didn't quite happen. So there's that kind of provisionality. So one of them was called Election. It's set in this high school in Sao Paulo following the student elections. And you think, cool, that could be fascinating. But in the end, it's just lots of chatting in rooms. It's sort of the difference, (laughs) as you you suggest, between a document and a documentary. Yeah. The the same with, um, you mentioned Sergei Loznitsa's the trial. Yeah. Well, it sounds a bit like a university project in a sense, yeah, and I exactly. don't mean that to sound as no. condescending as it does. I mean, but university projects he takes, are very important. Well, yeah, he takes a sequence of found footage from one of Stalin's 1930s show trials, and then you have kind of two hours of, yeah. of that. Yeah, exactly. So basically, one of his researchers was digging around for another project and just found all this stuff, and I think they were they were an agglomeration of 15-minute sections of this endless trial. I don't know how many days the trial elapsed over, but it was one of those... I think it was 1930 itself that it was. It, it occurred. And basically, you've got this selection of men who have all been accused of being members of this, this party called the Industrial Party, and they have to stand up and give their confessions, and the judge talks, and it's incredibly repetitive, as these show trials sort of had to be. 
and that's it. You're just watching it. There's no you, you're not you're not pointed in any other direction. He's just he's just spliced these bits together. Surely that's a historical document. Yes, it's a historical document. Yeah. It's a really fascinating yeah, historical document. Sure. Um, the punchline, without wishing to you know give too much away, am I allowed to give the spoiler? <laughs> the industrial <laughs> it's party. It's a sad spoiler. The I industrial party didn't exist. They were all sentenced oh. to death, or most of them were. And then then the only sort of editorial interjection is this bit of text that comes on the screen at the end, and it just says the industrial party didn't exist. They it was a fabrication. They the all end. died. Actually, a lot of their sentences were commuted in the end. Interestingly, oh, but okay. anyway. It, was, it wasn't. It wasn't. What a kind man, Stalin. He was, was a very kind yeah. man. There, there you go. Bit of, Famously, bit, bit of clemency. And just also tell us about the focus of it was Zhao Liang. Is that yes. right? Zhao Liang. I don't know if the pronunciation is perfect. I think we've done a reasonable job there, but it's not really for me to say. People can um, write it and tell us how can write we did it. it. Exactly. He is a Chinese filmmaker, a fearless Chinese filmmaker, I would say, because his main subject is corruption in China um, which is you know not an easy thing to shine a light on uh, today um, as much as any any other time probably more so today the film I saw in this selections there were three films unfortunately I only got to see one of them but it was it was really really good it's called petition and it was shot over 10 years from the late 90s to up until the Beijing Olympics in 2008 and it follows these there's basically there's this bizarre system dating back about 2000 years where if you've got a grievance against a local official, you go and air it at a local petition office, generally in sort of the, the, the main city of that region or nowadays in terms of this film in Beijing. So you've got people travelling all over the country to go to Beijing to give their grievances. I think in the old days you used to bang a drum, so all, all petition offices had drums in them. And it's like an official It's like an process. official process, yeah. except it's incredibly... I mean, it's official, but it's it's sort of doesn't work so basically people turn up with their grievances terrible things have happened to them they've had land expropriated money taken from them etc etc it's kind of their last resource last resort they turn up they're given slips of paper they're told to wait years literally elapse it's called a petition village because it's basically a shanty town they set up camp they set up camp with their families sometimes so you've got these kids basically living homeless but they've kind of got homes elsewhere in the country and you know there are these incredibly poignant moments where you've got kids going daddy I want to go home now mm. and they're just waiting and, and, and in a way um, it's not a story of hope you know they're waiting because they think something's going to happen or they, they've got optimism it's, it's a story of total despair this, they, 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 they feel like these people feel like there's nothing else that they can do because one woman had been waiting for 20 years and at the start of the film the village is gone so it's sort of 2008 at the start there's a little bit of in fact this is one of the things that doesn't hew to the verite category there's a bit of mixing up of chronology but basically the Beijing Olympics have come along all the hutons they've all been torn down and the petition village is sort of in the process of being removed as well it begins on a note of hopelessness and, mm. and ends on one as well and it's just you know it's taken it takes them 10 years to film all this stuff it's incredibly patient and incredibly moving and really quite depressing one of the other aspects to it as one of these petitioners you've got these rather terrifying sinister people called retrievers and they're basically government officials or envoys of government officials who are there to intercept the petitioners basically to stop to stop the petitioners embarrassing the local party bosses who have been at root of the corruption and people get disappeared so they're like sort of enforcers they're enforcers exactly some people are put in mental institutions or Whatever they're whatever they're called there, essentially just locked up. Um, so this filmmaker is shining a light on. Yeah, and he films it surreptitiously. This. I mean, obviously he's not yeah. supposed to be talking to these people. Yeah. And it's yeah, it's 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 quite slow in places. I've said it's not without its longer. I mean, there are kind of moments where, 
it doesn't. It seems fair enough. It seems fair enough. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's not. It's not particularly funny. I'm not yeah, sure no. what Nick Fraser would say. No. You know, there aren't there aren't actually funny moments. There might have been. Well, he does. He does, right. he does mention it in his book. This one, doesn't he? Doesn't he? Say he does that actually. It's, yeah. It's one of one of his important documentaries. It is. Although he sort of he said at its best, petition mm. does X and X and X, and you have you have a feeling that he sort of feels like oh, there could have been a bit more editorialising. There could have been a bit of wry humour thrown in. But I, I feel like it earns its seriousness. To be honest, it does. <laughs> I have to say that does does sound. Like and you can catch it on YouTube. Um, so I would recommend. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for um, telling us about that. My pleasure. That is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Toby Lishtig, Henry Hitchings and Thomas Meany. All that remains is for me to issue the firm advice that you buy a copy of the TLS, or better yet, subscribe in print or digitally to save yourself a trip to the shop. In the next issue, we'll have Andrew Motion on the tragicomic Wordsworth, Colin Grant on how black writers are patronised, fresh looks at Brecht and Goethe and studies in the use of the semicolon. Yes, really. For now, though, from Lucy and from me, goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.